This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, this is Trisha. Just a quick reminder before we get to our guest today that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is on Saturday, October 26th at Georgetown University, and we really hope all of you plan to join us. You'll come and be inspired by luminaries in health and wellness and take home real strategies to improve your happiness and wellness. You can get all the information you need at AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com. And now for the show. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Mary Neal is board-certified orthopedic spine surgeon, and she's an author two times over. We're so happy she's here to talk to us about her life-after-death experience. Mary's going to read a selection from Chapter 10 from her book, To Heaven and Back, to set the scene. When I first realized that I was pinned in the waterfall, I did not panic and I did not struggle, but I desperately tried to get out of my boat by using some standard techniques. God had saved me more than once in the past, so I, once again, reached toward God and asked for his divine intervention. I did not demand rescue. I knew that he loved me and had a plan for me. I asked only that his will be done. At the very moment I turned to him, I was overcome with an absolute feeling of calm, peace, and of the very physical sensation of being held in someone's arms while being stroked and comforted. I felt like I imagined a baby must feel when being lovingly caressed and rocked in his mother's bosom. I also experienced an absolute certainty that whatever happened would be okay, regardless of the outcome. And I knew with absolute certainty that I was being held and comforted by Jesus, which was initially surprising to say the least, as I'm just an ordinary person, one of the billions of us on this planet. I do not currently have the words to explain how it happened, but at that time I understood perfectly how Jesus could be there holding and comforting me and would similarly be present for any other person who called on him anywhere in the world. As he held me, Jesus took me through a short review of my life. If I had any preconceptions about death, it would have been to assume that a life review would be the stereotypical image of one's life flashing before their eyes. That is not what my experience was. I was shown events in my life, not in isolation, but in the context of their unseen ripple effect. It is easy for all of us to see the impact our words or actions may have on our immediate surroundings, but to see the impact of events or words dozens of times removed was profoundly powerful. Through this experience, I was able to clearly see that every action, every decision, and every human interaction impacts the bigger world in far more significant ways than we could ever be capable of appreciating. Wow. And that's the scratch of the surface. How did you get to the point of being trapped under a waterfall? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was kayaking in South America with dear friends of ours who are professionals, and there was a series of events that sort of propelled me over a large waterfall. And after I went over the waterfall, the front end of my boat became pinned or stuck in the rocks and the underwater features. And so the boat and I were then immediately submerged under 8 to 10 feet of water. And that is where I stayed for about 30 minutes. So you died. 
I did die. Yeah. I was without oxygen for 30 minutes. Ultimately, when they did start CPR, of course, I had no pulse and wasn't breathing and all that sort of thing. And they are professionals, and they were quite aware of time. They had been timing it, in fact. And so they only started CPR because I was their dear friend, and they couldn't bear to do nothing. But no, I was long past dead. (laughs) Was the water really cold? Like, was the water so cold that it helped preserve, you know, how you hear that? First of all, the answer is no. But more importantly, you hit on one of my own pet peeves. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because because people hear things and make assumptions, right. but never go back and actually look at the data or look at the real facts. And I will tell you that the idea that cold water makes a difference was based on one very old and not very well done study in very young children. The reality is, even in that study, very cold water, meaning below freezing, decreased the degree of brain damage that some very young children had, but it actually didn't change their survival rate. And there have been a number of studies done since then that show that the only variable that makes a difference is submersion time, meaning time without oxygen. And so cold water actually doesn't make any difference. Mm. Were you conscious throughout when you were under well, the water? Very, interesting because I never had the experience of being conscious and then unconscious. Mm. I had the experience of being conscious and then more conscious. Things became more real than real. And I began to feel more alive than I have ever felt. Wow. And you talk about how you saw yourself there, right? That you, when you left your body, you actually saw yourself in the water, right? I did. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a shift in time and dimension. And I will tell you, I'm not a physicist, and so I don't really necessarily know what the right words are to use. But time and dimension changed. And when my spirit had left my body and I was up and over the river, yes, I could be with these, I don't know what to call them, people, spirits, beings, I never really know what to call them, but these people who were there to welcome me and greet me and love me and make me feel known. But at the same time, I could look back at the scene at the river, and yes, I could see one of my friends pull my body to shore, and then I could watch as they started CPR. And I could still hear them to a degree. One of them kept calling to me, and so I could still hear and in some respects, I guess, interact with the earthly world. Mm-hmm. even though the true me, my soul, was elsewhere. Wow. And, I might add, not planning on coming back. <laughs> so you just innately knew that, like you were not coming back, like you just knew that. Oh, there's no way. When I could see my body, I recognized it as me. And I might add, that was sort of the first time that it dawned on me that, okay, I guess I did die. But as I looked at it, I did recognize that it was mine and it represented my life here on earth. It represented my life with my husband and my four little kids. And I had a great life. Mm. I mean, I had absolutely nothing to run away from. I didn't have any issues. I had really a wonderful life. But in context, I mean, when compared to being home, being in God's world, which is truly our home, I looked at my body and I had absolutely 
no intention of returning. When you did, (laughs) what happened? (laughs) Yeah, so when you did return, what did that feel like? I was first in an absolute state of disbelief really depression. I couldn't believe that I'd been kicked out. (laughs) And that's really not exactly how I felt. I mean, I had been given a laundry list of things I still had to do here on earth. And so I knew that I, and I might add everyone, I mean, if you're here on earth, it's because you have work to do. So I knew I had work to do, but at the same time, I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe I had to come back. (laughs) Harry, when you talk about work to do, can you tell us about what that was like and how you knew that? And then when you said, we're all here on earth to do our work, can we talk a little bit about that? I will tell you that toward the end of my near death or after death experience, I was on this threshold of sort of a great dome structure. I'm never quite sure. I don't quite have the words to describe it. But I knew that that was the point of no return. And we stopped short of that. And were there for what felt like many hours, at the end of which I was told that it wasn't my time, that I had more work to do on Earth, and that I would have to go back to my body. And I am a confident, self-reliant person, and so I I said, no, no, it's okay, I, I can stay. And at that point in time, then these, again, these people or beings who had taken me down this pathway told me that I had more work to do on Earth, and they used that as a time to give me this really a laundry list of things yet to be done. And it wasn't an impression that I had. It wasn't a feeling that I had. I'm a very pragmatic, very concrete sort of person. And so believe me, it was basically a list. Like, okay, here's a list. Get to work. Like what was on that list? Well, everything on that list was going to challenge me in some way or another. The most challenging, certainly, was being told about the coming and unexpected death of my oldest son. Mm-hmm. And when I asked why, why my son, I was immediately taken back to my life review in which, among other things, I had been shown the truth in God's promise that beauty comes of every single thing, eventually, you know, not always quickly, and reminded that it is a matter of trust, trusting that God has a plan for each of us that's one of hope and trusting that beauty comes. Then I was taken back to my body. And on this list of things, many of the things have come to pass. Not all of them have. I don't know that they will or won't. I do believe that the plans for our lives can change. But I will tell you that every moment of every day, part of my brain is questioning and listening and asking myself, am I in this moment in time doing what I think God would have me be doing? If the answer is yes, then, you know, I keep going. When opportunities come up, I always try to say yes to the opportunities in the direction that I think God would have me be doing. Because, you know, we aren't each given a laundry list, but we each have work that we need to be doing. I mean, it's part of why we're here. And I think that's a big challenge every day is to try to be doing that, even if all it is is reflecting God's love to the world. I mean, that in and of itself is a really important thing to do. So your book is about transformation. You have a big faith transformation, but what was your faith like before? I think one of the really wonderful things about my experiences is that I have always just been a typical person. 
I mean, I grew up in the Midwest in the 1950s, and like every other kid, went to Sunday school and then went home to my life. You know, I certainly had always bought into the concept of being a good person, honest, ethical, you know, all of those sorts of things. But I was a very typical person. I went off to college. I went to medical school. I mean, let's face it, thinking about one's spiritual life is not high on the priority list when you have a busy life. And then I became the director of spine surgery at a big university, and I had a husband and four little kids. And I mean, I was no zealot, that's for sure. If someone had asked me, I would have said that I was a Christian. But as I look back on it, I think I was sort of a cultural Christian. I think that I was, like so many people, just too busy, really, to think much about any of it. If someone had asked me about death, I will tell you that at that point in my life, I had not lost anyone I had known. You know, a grandparent, a parent, a sibling. I mean, I had never been forced to think about death concretely. I had certainly dealt with death in my medical training and in my practice, but I had never personally had to think about death and how it related to me. And I, again, think that that's pretty typical. You know, we're all going to die, but nobody wants to think about it until they have to. And so my faith before this was pretty vague. I sort of had the attitude of, well, if it's true, great. If it's not true, I haven't lost anything. And that's kind of what it was. I'd like to tell you that I had a more formed sense of things, but I didn't. Did they say why, like, in a way you got a time out? Why did you have to go there and then come back? Well, I think the question you're asking is why me? But I'll tell you that near-death experiences or after-death experiences are incredibly common. In this country alone, there are millions of people who have had these kinds of experiences, and they're all very, very similar. Many people have these experiences and I think don't remember them. And then there are, like I said, millions of people have had experiences and are allowed to remember them. And I personally think that God wants to be found. And I believe we are meant to live a joy-filled life. Most people in the world today are not. And I think it is one way to try to shed some light onto the fact that there is way more going on than what we understand, and that there really is this spiritual reality, and trying to open people's eyes to it. And I think if any one person accepts nothing other than the fact that there really is life after death, whatever you want to call it, that one reality, that one truth, begins to radically change their experience of the present. Because all of a sudden, if there really is life after death, you have to start questioning the meaning and purpose of today. And all of a sudden, what you do begins to matter. The choices you make actually begin to matter. And it changes the entire way you think about life. I don't know. Maybe you know, maybe people are sent back to try to stimulate the conversation. How do you respond when someone says your experience was psychiatric and not spiritual? Just because someone does or doesn't believe what I have to say doesn't change the truth. And so fundamentally, it's of no consequence to me whatsoever what someone thinks or says or believes. But 
that said, my actual response is exactly what my response was when you initially mentioned cold water. Mm-hmm. I just challenge people to go and look into it for themselves. Actually put out the time and effort to do the research and collect the data and try to prove anything I'm saying wrong. Because I know for a fact that not only will they not be able to prove anything I'm saying wrong, but in the process, they will be changed. It's very, very easy to come up with excuses. Oh, gosh, that's a hallucination. Gee, that's medication. Mm -hmm. Gee, that's neurotransmitter. It's a DMT trip. There are a lot of, quote, explanations, which I really at this point just call excuses. But there are many potential explanations that people latch on to, but they are unwilling to actually dig into the real literature, the real data. They're unwilling to actually look at their own lives. And there are many reasons for that. I think the biggest reason is fear, because (laughs) if they were to accept what I'm saying as truth, or if they were able to accept that there really is enough evidence for life after death, or for God's presence, or for the reality of miracles to be significant enough for them to say, yes, it's true, then all of a sudden it's very inconvenient because all of a sudden maybe they have to change the way they treat people. All of a sudden maybe they have to change the way they interact with the world or with themselves, with their family. It's very inconvenient. Most people do not accept spiritual realities or spiritual truths because it's very threatening to them. Yeah. So I just challenge people to go prove me wrong. Right, (laughs) right. So being a physician, you're with people all the time. How has this changed your practice? It's changed my practice in a number of ways because, of course, you can't go through an experience like this without having everything about you change. And I will say that I spent many months afterwards trying to come up with a scientific or a medical explanation and ultimately was unable to. It does a couple of things. First of all, it showed me very clearly that it's a false choice we're presented when we're asked to either believe science or believe in the spiritual world. Because I discovered they coexist very easily. They're just very different. They answer different questions. Science will always be the means by which we try to figure out how things work. And spirituality will always be the pathway by which we answer the questions of meaning and purpose. The two coexist very easily and are very easily integrated. And so in my medical practice, I am that same person. (laughs) I I don't turn into a scientist one day and a faith-based person another day because they are one and the same. One of the things that's happened in my practice is that I absolutely know that beauty comes of all things and that God has a plan for each one of us that's one of hope. And what that means for my patients who have suffered a significant life-changing injury is that I am able to approach that with a different mindset Mm. because I truly believe that it is part of the plan for their life. And I truly believe that it's an opportunity. It's Mm. an opportunity for growth, for change, for something beautiful. Right. 
You know, when you passed over and you said it was real, but more real, real, is that carried now when you came back? Are things more real, real? <laughs> no, life is life and earth is Yeah, not. okay. <laughs> and earth is not heaven. Okay. Which doesn't mean it's bad. Right. I react badly when people talk about heaven being so wonderful and, oh my gosh, when someone dies, they've gone to a better place and all that sort of thing. I react very poorly when people focus only on heaven, God's world, whatever you want to call it, to the neglect of our earthly existence, Mm. because it diminishes our existence here. And it's not like that. If you went on a wonderful, wonderful journey throughout Europe, you would not sit in your hotel room talking about how wonderful your hometown is and how you can hardly wait to go back to your hometown because it's so much better. Well, that would diminish your time in Europe. No, you're going to go to Europe and you're going to learn everything and see everything and do everything you can. And then you go home. And when you go home, it's wonderful. Your family and your friends are so happy to see you. You get to sleep in your own bed. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And that's sort of the relationship between God's world, which is our true home, and our time here on Earth. I mean, this is a great adventure. It's a great gift. It's an incredible opportunity, but it's temporary. (laughs) And it's temporary, Mm. yeah. As you know, recently my mom died and my dad too. But when my mom died, I had an experience where I bought a dress for her funeral. It was the day after she died. It was in the room that she died in, and I went to try it on. And it was a dress I knew she wouldn't like. And But I put it on, <laughs> and I walked around the corner to look at myself in the mirror. And just as I was looking mm-hmm. at myself in the mirror, my thoughts in my head were, Mom will hate this dress. At which point, the full-length mirror, which was, you know, firmly attached to the door, I mean, came crashing down. <laughs> so, you know, I think, gee, that must have been mom. You know, she was a person of strong opinions. You know, I know your mother, and that yeah. was probably your mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I guess what I'm saying is, can the dead see and interact with the living? Yes. There is no question that there is spiritual crossover. I would only qualify that by saying that I do not believe it's under our control. Sitting here, I can't say, hey, Dad, can you come and whatever, help me find a parking spot, (laughs) you know, (laughs) or I really want you to do something. They have work to do, and I don't know what they're doing, but I do know that the spirits who have gone home have work to do. But there is no question that there's tremendous spiritual interaction. And I absolutely know that our loved ones who are gone are aware of what's happening with us. They're aware of what's happening in our lives. And yes, I believe it's at God's direction, but yes, I think they can interact. There is spiritual crossover. When I think about our earthly life and our heavenly life, it's not that we are here and they are there and that's that. I think of us living within, whether it's a fourth dimension, whatever the correct terminology is, I think that the spiritual world is all around us. We are just not aware of it. We don't even have the ability necessarily to usually be in tune with it. It's sort of like if you were a circle and you were a circle within a cube, you wouldn't even understand that you were inside the cube because you don't even know what a cube is if you're a circle. 
And I think that's us. I think that we live within the spiritual world, and occasionally there's crossover that we notice. But I think a lot of it is awareness. You know, we sort of close our minds to it, and we're too busy to notice. I don't think everything is a miracle, but I think, for example, there are a lot of miracles that happen. And we can either respond to things that happen by saying, oh, that's weird, or be open to the possibility that it is a spiritual occurrence or a miracle. The stories are too common. You know, you can't hear the same sort of story many thousands of times and not realize there's some truth in there. Right. But it's a funny thing. People will believe anything that's written on Facebook, even if there's yeah. no evidence. You're right. You're right. <laughs> but when it comes to spiritual things, people want more and more and more and more evidence. And it's a fascinating thing. And again, I think it comes down to the fact that it's very threatening. And the folks that greeted you when you passed, I think you said they felt familiar. It wasn't. Oh, yes. So you think we'll reunite? Do you think you'll be with your son again? Good. I do. The people, and I'm going to call them people, but again, I don't know what to call them. These people that greeted me were people who had known me and loved me as long as I have existed. (sighs) And I them. But I did not know anyone personally who had died at that point in time. And so I didn't look at them and immediately recognize, oh, that's my grandmother, or that's right. my neighbor. But I knew that they were people who were important in my life story. And whether that's a great grandparent who died before I was born or a cousin, I mean, they were important to my life story, which is why they were there to greet me. And I am pretty darn sure when my work's done that my son and the other people who I have loved will definitely be there. And it's a funny thing because I've talked to some people who say, well, if my father's going to be there, I'm not going. (laughs) (laughs) He was a son of a gun and I never want to see him in my lifetime or death time. (laughs) But it's a funny thing because it would take more than this podcast to really get into the discussion of it. But the fact of the matter is all relationships are reconciled and there is nothing but love. Even those people who may have done you great harm in your lifetime or for whatever other reason, you feel a great deal of hostility or anger, you know, you name the destructive emotion. Those feelings disappear and it is all about love and all of those relationships are reconciled. So you know the quote from Hebrews that's, be not forgetful to entertain strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Absolutely. Talk about angels. I mean, are there angels that are here on earth that we don't know that they're angels or how's that? Yes, yes, and yes. (laughs) Are they in the form of people? Uh, Biblically, angels can appear in a lot of different forms. My own feeling is that angels appear to the people to whom they're meant to appear in the way that will speak to that person. Maybe that's another human being. For Moses, it was a burning bush. I think that the beautiful thing about God is God will speak to us where we are and in the way that we can understand. And absolutely, there are angels that cross over and interact with us. And I can tell you examples from my own life, not just from my kayak accident, which had a number of angels involved, Mm -hmm. but even since then, 
I mean, I can tell you some examples that are just clear-cut angelic presence. And I absolutely believe that that occurs to most people. It's just that most of the time we ignore it or we go, oh, that's weird. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Strange. And then Mm -hmm. we move on. But I absolutely believe that there are angels that are Mm -hmm. present in our world. And I think they do God's work. They bring messages. They bring guidance. They do all sorts of things. And it's biblical. I mean, I'm not just making up something that is not biblical. But I do think that they cross over. And I think that oftentimes spiritual crossover happens when we're in vulnerable situations. For example, when we're asleep or when we are in dire straits in the hospital, or when we're in a position where we're able to get rid of all of the busyness of life, all of the static, and focus on what really matters. I think that's so true. I mean, I know in my life I've had that, and Trisha and I talk about Mm. these kinds of things all the time, and I know, Trisha, you Mm -hmm. would agree. Just when you talk about the miracles that are happening, they do happen so often. And if you're aware, it's really fun to count them and to see them and to recognize them and see them as something pretty special, you know? That's the incredible thing. If I told you a riveting story about purple shirts, you would spend the next two weeks walking around being amazed at how many people wore purple shirts. You never knew. Right. You, you right. never noticed. <laughs> right. Or, you know, red cars or anything like that. It's all a matter of awareness. And once your awareness is elevated, all of a sudden, it does become a bit of a game. Mm-hmm. You all of a sudden can look around and go, oh, wow, that's nice. amazing. Another yeah. miracle. Thank you, Lord. Thanks right. for that. Things happen. You know, you miss a plane. And it turns into a game. It's like, okay, I wonder if there's something in this. And usually something happens and you go, oh, okay, great. I get it. And like you said earlier, just knowing that there's clues. Because so often people talk to Dora and I about looking for their purpose or what am I here for? And just knowing that these clues are there. Can you talk about that? I would say two things. First of all, I believe that there is a plan for each and every one of us. And I hear frequently, well, I want to follow God's plan for my life, but I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And more times than not, what's really happening is that God's been shouting at them, but they sort of turn away going, no, 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 that's not the direction I'm supposed to go. Because it's very difficult not to hear where God wants you to go, but it's very difficult to say, yes, I'll go there. Because we always want something that we're interested in and we feel like we can do. And oftentimes we're being called to do something that challenges us because no one changes or grows when things are easy. (laughs) We change and grow and learn and become more loving, kind, compassionate, et cetera, when we face challenges or when we step up to the challenges presented. And so our knee-jerk response to almost everything is no. I don't have the time. I don't have the ability. I don't have whatever. Go down the list. And so I find that oftentimes people don't want or they think they aren't able to do what they're being called to do. The second problem is people want to be called to greatness. You know, they want to be called to be the director of some big program instead of being called to start a program. Or they want someone else's plan. 
they forget about the fact that we each are really important. And without all of us, you know, if everyone was a car maker, there would be no one to fix the cars. You know? right. I mean, we all have important jobs in the whole, but people want to be called to other people's paths. Also, people forget that nothing's going to happen if you don't get up off the couch and take a step. You may be called to be at the top of the Grand Teton Mountain, but unless you get in your car and you drive to the base, you're never going to get to the top. I talk to many, many people who are just sitting. They're basically sitting on their couch waiting to be called. And my advice is always, well, no, you know what? If you hear an opportunity or if you don't, just go do something because God will always give you confirmation or push you in a different direction. You can't go in a pathway if you're not moving. You got to get up and get off the couch. The guys who resuscitated me will be the very first ones to adamantly state that they had absolutely nothing to do with my survival. But the fact is, they actually had to physically do CPR right. because somebody had to do it. They may not have been responsible for my spirit coming back, but they had to actually do the CPR. And it's the same sort of thing. You can't sit on the couch and think that God's going to present the world to you. You have to get up and choose a direction and wait for confirmation, go in a different direction. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a participatory sort of a thing. We ask all of our guests what their favorite quote is. And so what's your favorite quote? The non-biblical one that truly is a foundation of what I am is the quote, be the change you wish to see in the world. Mm -hmm. That is a quote that is really a bedrock, I think, of my life, our family's life. And ultimately, if you could only do that one thing in your life, that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I would answer this next question by saying everyone should read your book, mm -hmm. but how, <laughs> if you had one book that everyone should read, what would it be? That is a very, very difficult question. And of mm -hmm. course, it should be my book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it should be. Before my book, of course, mm -hmm. should be the New Testament. But in terms of other books, I actually think that Edwin Abbott's book, Flatland, which was a very old book, it was published in the late 1800s, is such a wonderful book for people to read because on its surface, it's not that interesting. It was a satire about Victorian culture. But I think it's a book that is able to expand one's consciousness in that it talks all about what I mentioned earlier, life in a one-dimensional world, two-dimensional world, three-dimensional world. And I think it gives a way to imagine our life within a spiritual world. And I think that that's important for a lot of people because I think that for many people, they just can't think that abstractly about the spiritual world. So I think it's an interesting way to think about things. And I think it's about 20 pages long. It's a really simple little book. Do you feel Willie a lot? Do you feel him around a lot? No. In the, I would say the couple of years after his death, I had three, I'll call them dreams, but I think they were dream visitations. I think his spirit actually was there. I had those experiences. And then I was giving a series of talks. This was probably 
six or seven years ago. And in a two-week period of time, I still don't even really know how to categorize it, so I don't. But I gave seven talks, and after each talk, someone asked me if I had Native American heritage, which we don't. But when my son was growing up, everyone always thought he was a Cherokee. And at the end of each one of these talks, someone asked me the question, and I said no. And they would say, really? Because there's this Cherokee chieftain off your shoulder just listening. And it happened seven out of seven times, totally different groups, three different states. I mean, I can't discount that. Now, do I think that was my son? I don't know. But I do know that the end of the third dream visitation, I knew that I wouldn't see him again until my time's up. It was sort of a, I don't know what to call it, communication. I don't know. I knew that he had work to do. I had work to do. And we both sort of parted knowing that, okay, we're each going to focus on the work we have to do and we will meet up again, you know, in the future. And so, no, ever since then, I have not, you know, felt him or seen him. Well, you will one day. Yep. And he'll probably tell me it took me long enough to get my work done. (laughs) I know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very difficult thing because... Obviously, I would love to go home. I would love to be reunited with him and the other people who I've lost now, who I really love. But at the same time, I know that my family here and my friends here would miss me. You know, as Dora shared, her parents passed and my husband passed and my brother and my Uh, father all within like a, it's hard to talk about still, but just talking to you is just awesome. How long ago was that? Danny was five years ago, and that was my husband. And then my brother was three years ago, my father, three and a half. That's the problem with grief. It just stinks. But we know they're there, you know? You know? Yeah. No, but that doesn't change the longing and missing their physical presence. That's the problem. You know, it's a drag. It's a drag. I mean, even when it's the natural order, like Doro, even for your parents, yeah, of course it's expected. I mean, right. we all die, but it still is a bummer. It's just <laughs> yeah. still a bummer. It doesn't matter. And then when it's not the natural order, when it's your spouse or when it's a kid, then it's even worse. It's like, oh, my goodness. And like you talk about, you know, doing your work and that everything is of a greater plan just makes so much, you know, it just it just makes so much sense. Yeah. And that's the problem. It's all about trust. You know, we don't want trust. to know why. Like, right. why did my son die? Why did your husband die? But the reason we want to ask that question to have the answer of why is not because we actually want the answer and then we'll go, oh, okay. We want the answer because we want to decide if it was worth it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. No, you're Control. Right. Death is always a, a difficult thing. It just depends on which side you're on. Well, Mary, thank you for oh. sharing your remarkable experience. Thank you so much. And your love of God with the world. Thank you. Oh, it's such a privilege to be on. I thank you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>